Good afternoon. Uh, my name's Colm. I'm a principal engineer. I work at AWS. Uh, I've worked at AWS about 12 years. And um, my first day when I joined, I was actually working on Amazon CloudFront, our CDN, Content Distribution Network. And um, you know, that sits right at the edge of our network. It's you know, distributed. When we launched, we had 15 sites. These days, we have hundreds. Um, but then, and now, and before, I've, I've kind of always worked on the perimeter, you know, stuff that's, uh, stuff that's right at the edge, the kind of first point of contact uh, for requests uh, that are coming in or when packets are coming into our network. And um, what I'm going to talk about today is um, how, to, how I think about and we think about uh, security in that context and how we think about securing systems and adding you know, defense in depth uh, for important security risks, but without also you know, accidentally increasing uh, security risks along the way. Um, I gave a talk at Reinforce, uh, our security summit, uh, in the summer last year about the innards of cryptography. And I started with a warning slide. And I said, this, this talk contains math. Uh, um, and people still liked it, so I survived. Uh, this talk doesn't contain math, but it is secretly a talk about complexity theory. Uh, but I, I promise everyone will be able to handle it, and we're not going to get into too much nuanced theory. It's just kind of an important way in which we approach the problem um, and how we think about it. And, uh, and we're also going to go through some code. And, um, but you don't need to be a programmer to really realize what's going on or, 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 or take some of the lessons away. Um, so when you see those, don't, uh, don't, don't get too scared. Um, I know we can all handle it. But um, you know, I've, I've been working on the perimeter that whole time. And security is just, you know, it's, it's our top priority. It's the number one thing we think about. Uh, we never want to have a, a security incident or any kind of security issue impact our customers. Um, and it's, it's a never-ending problem, right? Security, new security threats emerge. Uh, there's always new things to adapt to. Um, and it's a, it's a really, really challenging space to operate in. And uh, I found that you know, I also work in cryptography, which is a very, very security-focused field. And I found that cryptography tends to be, in its kind of maturity of thinking, uh, a few years ahead of, of, of uh, the practices that show up later in, in the kind of general security field. And, and everything I'm going to talk about today um, we've already been applying and kind of do in the field of cryptography. So like just some examples of how those things tend to work. So the, the field of cryptography, it's, it's just really hard. There's a lot of deep math involved. It attracts a certain kind of expert, uh, people who are really, really um, you know, focused on the deep details. And uh, I would say you know, w within the cryptography community, there's a lot of uh, like uncompromising black and white thinkers, right? And, um, and they would take that as a, you know, as a token of pride. And, um, and because of that, they focus on like, really rigorously you know, nailing security risks and really getting things down in very refined ways to like, really guaranteeing and convincing themselves that there's no potential issue there. And, and, and they're finding very scalable ways of doing that that now we're applying to kind of like the fields of network security or uh, identity and access control, right? 
And so what I'm really trying to do is to like catch us up and take some of the lessons that have been coming from a field like cryptography that we think is a few years ahead and then show how you can use those in, in other fields, how we use them in other fields, uh, and, and how everything is maturing. Um, but, well, but I want to start with why all of this is kind of so hard, right? Um, you know, I think the field of, of information security is, is a tricky one to operate in. It's full of uh, lots of kind of counterintuitive facts and uh, all sorts of kind of perverse disincentives and, and things that just make it a very challenging field to operate in. But one that's like just really um, core is that you know, the task of keeping the world's information secure is an incredibly important one. You know, if, if there's uh, an issue that discloses folks' you know, personal information, um, it's, it, it can be quite severe. But we don't really have the full like, mental models or metaphors to really think about that. Um, you know, one I like to go back to is you know, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, right, um, file sharing was taking off, right? And uh, there, there were websites and, uh, you know, BitTorrents and so on you could go to and, uh, and get music illegally, like without paying for it, right? Cer certainly breaking copyright law. And, um, you know, folks, just ordinary common sense and intuition would tell them, well, you know, that, that doesn't really feel like a crime. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm doing anything bad. Um, even though it is a crime and it, it's depriving somebody of, of money that they're owed. And, and a lot of that's due to just, you know, this information is, uh, it's completely intangible, right? You can't feel it. And it's not quite stealing, right? Like, uh, you know, if you steal something, the other person no longer has it, right? That's, that's in the real world. And they suffer a real measurable loss, you know? And, um, and unless it's somehow recovered later and given back to them, there's nothing to do about that. But in, in the world of information, you know, you might get a copy of the information and they might not even know, right? And like, there's just no good world, uh, world metaphors for that. And um, at once it feels quite like innocuous, like it's not like robbing a bank. No one's going in there and physically committing violence and making people feel you know, very threatened and unsafe. Um, but you know, there's another side to that coin, which is the other side of that is if, if information you know, is stolen or somebody gets it who shouldn't have it, there's really no getting it back. You know, it's a one-way door. Information can just be very trivially copied and rapidly spread. And it's, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of risk than we're ever really used to in the physical world. And our mental models um, can lead us in, in just uh, very dangerous directions. Right, so when, you've got, so when you've got some information to protect, right, you're generally starting with the worldview of like, well, this information is like the target for some attacker. And if, if, and if they get hold of it, um, you know, I think I'm gonna have a bad day or my, my customers are gonna have a bad day. You know, maybe I've got a, a trove of financial data or something like that, right? And, our, and the most common metaphor, you know, the, 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 the what's working in our heads the way we think we, we want to protect this is how we protect things in the real world, right? Which is, you know, we put a wall around it, right? So, you know, going back to like medieval times, build, people were building castles and forts and 
you know, or using caves before that. You know, classic, classic strategy for uh, defending things, right? And then, you know, someone tells you, well, but your data is really, really, really important. Like, you need defense in depth. You need to be way more stringent. I need to have way more controls. I need to be really, really sure uh, that the data is being protected. And so you add another wall, right? You put another one around that. And so we, we've got one perimeter with certain access controls, and maybe we've got another one. Uh, there might be some redundancy between them, and they have you know, overlapping controls that they're both enforcing. But if one ever gets it wrong, the other will take up the slack and so on, right? But this is, this is like a one-way ratchet, right? There's really only one way this metaphor can keep going uh, and only one direction uh, things can go in, which is like add even more and more layers. Um, and this is, you know, this is a really common practice, right? Lots of network security diagrams look like this. Lots of architectural diagrams look like this. And even some like software design, um, software design patterns look like this where internally the software has these layers and each is supposed to enforce different things. Um, and you know, we all very naturally gravitate towards this model. Uh, and parts of it work well, but a, but a big part of it that doesn't is that this whole thing backfires because each layer is actually increasing the size of our trusted computing base. Right? The amount of code that we have to trust uh, to be well written, to not have any mistakes in it, to not have any security issues itself in it, um, or else we'd be exposed to a problem, right? And typically, these layers are also running in you know, pretty privileged parts of an architecture. You know, like if they're directly at the perimeter, they might have access to all of the incoming and outgoing traffic. Or if they're in a security layer, like authentication, they see everybody's authentication credentials and so on, right? And so, well, it's very tempting to like, well, I'm just going to add more layers. I'm going to put another little piece of steel around this and then a piece of iron around that. You know, it's, it's deceptive because really under the hood, uh, as coders, we know, well, all of that's just code. And there can be uh, mistakes in uh, that code or the configuration of that system. And if that's true, and, well, it can backfire and undo uh, all of the benefits, which is not good. Uh, you know, um, and it's, this, this is a, a really pernicious hard problem, right? It's, it's not just about like, measuring total code size and saying, well, that's the size of my trusted computing base, and I want to have, you know, I want to have it smaller and so on. It's also about like, how these layers interact. You know, a really classic example of this that comes from cryptography right, is that there, there are cryptographic algorithms that operate at different layers. They're supposed to be complementary. And um, actually, cryptography can be broken depending just purely on the order in which you add or use those layers, right? So a classic example of this is like AES-CBC, which is a, a great mode for encrypting things. It's, uh, it's actually um, really good. I like it. And uh, HMAC, which is an algorithm for authenticating data. Uh, and it turns out if you combine them in one order, you know, things are good. They'll, they'll work fine. Uh, if you authenticate data before you ever try to decrypt it, that's the good order. You know, no problem. Uh, on the other hand, if you decrypt data and then authenticate it because you encrypted the, the HMAC itself, that's bad, right? And like, I really want to underscore this point. This is the exact same amount of code, and it's the exact same code except for the order in which you added them, right? Und undoes the security. So that's a, 
uh, just a really simple kind of starter example of complexity theory, where literally a one like or zero binary difference in how you combine these things, just, just one bit of complexity undid, undid the entire security of this construction. Uh, famously, um, TLS or SSL, the protocol, combined these in the wrong order, right? And nobody realized for quite a long time. And then Lucky13 came along. I was like, yeah, those are in the wrong order. Uh, here's how to break that open. <laughs> um, so it's just staggering to think of, that just one little bit of complexity, just like if we had them just ordered them the other way, uh, everything would be fine. Um, makes it really scary. Um, you know, there's other examples of this too, right? In, um, it's in network layers, if you just combine, like if you put the firewall behind the thing it's supposed to be protecting, it's obviously no good, right? You need to put it in front of the thing it's protecting. Um, there's just simple ways where these layerings can go wrong. Uh, and we, um, you know, we see things like that happen sometimes. It's, um, uh, it's like staggering. Um, and so there's a term for this kind of complexity, right? Um, it's called cyclomatic complexity. And uh, that's a fancy academic term, but really all it means is that the, the measure or complexity of a system increases you know, every time a decision can be made, right? So the decisions we've seen so far are just like binary decisions. Do we order them that way or that way? And that doubles the complexity right at that point, right? If you've got a, a more complicated branch where you've got several options, well, then it multiplies the complexity by that number of options, right? And the real measure of the TCB of a system, right, how it, is how complex it is. How many different modes, how many different uh, ways it can uh, operate in. And, and that turns out to be uh, really proportionate to, to security risk, right? Because the more and more modes you have, the more likely it is that you don't have full test coverage for all those modes, um, and you don't have full pen testing coverage for all those modes, and that some attacker somewhere will find that one of those modes does something it shouldn't, right? That it was never accounted for, and this will, will undo the security of the system. Like, typically, the cyclomatic complexity of the systems we operate in are staggeringly huge, like unbelievably huge numbers, uh, because there's a lot of branches in the code itself, and there's a lot of configuration options that are exposed to administrators, and there's a lot of different ways things can be composed, right? So there's a lot of flexibility in these systems. Uh, in cryptography, you know, I'd say the last 10 years or so of really advanced cryptography engineering has been reducing the cyclomatic complexity of cryptography down as close as possible to a different measure of complexity um, that's called Kolmogorov complexity. And that's another fancy academic term. <laughs> but all that means, right, is that measure of complexity is the smallest amount of complexity that you need to solve a problem, right? So for example, you know, pretty much any system can be modeled as it takes some input and it produces some output, right? And there's some, there's some smallest number of like branches or if statements or whatever it takes to do that work, right? And that's this measure of complexity. And that's actually typically a small number. If you really rigorously, academically, like, analyze the system, you're like, yeah, it would only take this many, uh, you know, branches or instructions to do this operation. And actually, an interesting field where you see this is when people are talking about quantum computing and post-quantum cryptography, they're telling you how many, 
you know, qubits it would take to factor an RSA key and so on. And they're doing this kind of analysis, right? And so modern cryptographic engineering performs this kind of analysis and people are trying to design uh, cryptography algorithms and security systems that are, have as few options as possible, have really no settings or bells and whistles that just do something really, really well, um, and, and therefore reduce uh, you know, the amount of surface area of the, um, of the code, right? And um, you know, we all know it's really simple that um, you know, bad code is bad and good code is, is good. It's like, it's, that's a tautology. Uh, we all get that, but you know, that just like tackling a security risk problem like that just doesn't scale, right? Just analyzing every single line of code and asking as many people as you know to do the same and like, well, hey, if you spot any bad code, tell us. You know, everybody's already doing that. Um, you know, we, we have to have much more mature, scalable models that can, um, that can tackle this. And by rooting our kind of problem space and complexity, and then coming up with solutions that can scale as ridiculously large as the complexity problem is itself, we can actually start to produce simpler architectures um, and make more rigorous statements about systems and add kinds of defenses in depth that don't add risk. Um, and the, the first kind of simple approximation of this, like the first kind of high-level abstraction about all this, and one we're, we're internalizing a lot uh, at AWS and is core uh, to our security systems, is that, uh, well, more, more code is worse than less code. If you can write something in a smaller amount of code, that's almost always better. And this isn't just backed, backed up by research and complexity theory. It's also backed up by, like, there's a lot of academic research that shows, um, you know, percentage bugs and security issues. It's just proportionate to the lines of code that are written, almost regardless of language, uh, which is amazing. So if you can use abstractions and techniques that achieve more and fewer lines of code or more dense um, programming languages, uh, you know, do. It helps. Um, one thing I like to say to remind everybody of this, and it's literally emblazoned on the back of my laptop uh, as propaganda, um, is, uh, it, you know, you don't ever want to do less well. You want to do less well, um, which sounds like a quote from The Office. Um, when you, when you put it like that, but it's still, like, it's, uh, I think it's very profound and it's, it's really true. Like, our job is to make our systems smaller, right? Um, that's the first kind of thing. We want to be able to take all those layers of defense and find ways to, like, how do we do that in a smaller number of layers? And how do we do that uh, with, a, with a, uh, um, a smaller surface area, right? And, uh, no matter what the field, whether you're working on code or whether you're working on like an application that has lots of dependencies, and even if you're not writing the code, you're in charge of running it and deploying it and so on, um, where we start is by measuring the size, you know? Uh, for code, like line counts. Um, for applications, I'll show, I'll show you some methods in a bit. But like just by, just by starting to measure it, right, has a positive effect almost on day one, right? Because once you measure it, nobody wants it to drastically increase anymore. It becomes a contest, right? Um, and uh, you know, so for some of our security critical layers, you know, we've been like, well, here's how many lines of code we have today. And then everyone's like, whoa, okay, well, let's, let's try to get that down. Um, and you know, we'll prioritize over th things over time to try to reduce that line count. 
Um, but even before that, they definitely don't want it to increase. You know, when you start to see new changes come in that are uh, more dense or reduce the number of dependencies and so on. Um, and then the other kind of trick that we use and then I'm going to talk about is uh, we try to move a lot of our defenses in depth that are embedded in code and in running systems. And so we're kind of open and subject to malicious or untrusted input from outsiders. We try to move that out of band so that it's not in the running system anymore. Um, and that has a really positive effect of uh, um, you know, achieving the same security benefits without that risk, uh, and usually actually speeds things up too. It's also uh, a great performance benefit. And so there's some clever ways. And then uh, the last kind of technique that we use too is like, um, in general, like if you can't reduce the size of a system completely, uh, we try to use, you know, um, like in, even internally manage services rather than increasing the amount of software that we just bake into our systems. Um, because managed services tend to have a different, uh, you know, security profile because they tend to be owned and run, uh, whether it's by a team at Amazon or, you know, a partner or anyone who's uh, running a managed service. They just have a, a different risk profile because they're able to uh, respond to threats in real time. And it's not just, like, code that's nascently sitting there. So as I said, we start by measuring the size of systems, right? Anytime you want to fix a problem, uh, you got to got to start by measuring it, you know, at least, at least know where you are on day one. Um, the, um, for, for applications that we're deploying, um, this has actually gotten easier in recent years uh, because containers are a pretty neat encapsulation of like, well, here's effectively all of the libraries, everything that this application depends on, all like neatly bundled up into one literally container. You know, we'd, we've had a, a deployment system at Amazon um, for a long time called Apollo, which uh, Code Pipelines is based in. And it does something similar. It actually takes all of the dependencies for an application and builds uh, a nice little container environment. And, and it's, we use that internally, uh, but for services that are now building on top of containers, we have containers. Um, and it's just this nice, simple like measure, right? Uh, like, you've got this size of container today. Uh, try to get it smaller. Try to... Um, or certainly don't let it increase. Um, and the, you know, depending on whether your containers are in ECR or not, or whether they're ECS or EKS, or whether you're just using native Docker, um, there's different ways to measure this size. Worst case, you can just you know, launch a container, you know, get into it, and run something like DF or DU. Uh, but it's, there, it's, it's not particularly hard to measure uh, container sizes. But I think this is something that, like, security teams and security engineers and security orgs you know, should be doing and should advocate for, right? Keep an eye on this. Don't just let teams explode and grow, right? Because you know, every new thing that's being pulled in is risk. And so nice, simple way to keep a, keep a handle on this is to just have some transparent accountability and some metrics that are kept around. Uh, you know, we integrate this, some of this into our CI, CD. Uh, I have packages where they literally can't increase in size. There's a, there's a, there's a uh, test in the, in the deployment stage which would reject it. Um, and so you know, my, my commits ultimately will, will come back to me and I'll have to solve that. Uh, interestingly enough, actually, the first places we were doing that are in the embedded devices and um, device arena, where if you can imagine, um, you know, there's just only so much space on like a Kindle, right? 
uh, and, and you, you have your quota and that's it. And uh, it, can't, it can't go up. But it turns out to be uh, really, really applicable to this field. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's not just for software, though, right? It's for entire network architectures and applications, right? Another measure of complexity is like, well, I've got my application in a VPC. Uh, well, how, like, how big is that VPC or the subnet or wherever the unit is for that application? Like, how many things are in it, right? Because the interconnectedness between those things is itself, you know, a kind of complexity. And keeping a handle on that uh, matters. You know, increasingly, more and more of our customers uh, and Amazon itself, you know, have adopted this model of uh, trying to ring fence each application into its own VPC, and then using tools like Private Gateway, or sorry, Private Link, um, to to communicate between those VPCs. Um, which you might think, well, it's the same uh, number of things at the end of the day. It's the same number of EC2 instances, or or Dynamo tables or whatever, still running, right? Um, but actually organizing that, things that way, where everything's in its own little small bubble, and then you've got you know, small connectivity between those bubbles, uh, drastically reduces measurable complexity, right? It's, it's this huge combinatorial reduction um, in the risk space. And so just asking folks, like, what's your plan to, to get down into smaller uh, units if you can? Are there ways you can cellularize? Uh, and again, keeping some metrics and transparency and accountability on all of this uh, really, really matters. It's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's pretty cool. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the place where a lot of this thinking, at least for me, comes from is cryptography. Um, because cryptography's been doing this for about, call it, call it 10 years now. And, um, you know, Similarly, you know, when, when uh, Spectrum Meltdown came along, right, uh, kernels and libraries like libc and so on suddenly had to worry about microarchitectural attacks, right, and had to have mechanisms to patch them uh, and, had, and had to make sure that there, there, there were no risks there and so on. Whereas, uh, you know, cryptography as a field had been thinking about, you know, different kinds of microarchitectural attack, but still similar enough for quite a long time before that, you know, had been thinking, you know, we have to find ways to make our code rigorously constant time, make sure that there's nothing measurable in memory access or, or CPU instructions and so on, right? And, um, and you can see now that the tools and techniques that have evolved for cryptography engineering are starting to get applied to like infrastructure engineering. Um, so when we, when we started our S2N project, that signal to noise our, our open source implementation of um, TLS and SSL, um, we, uh, we were motivated um, directly you know, by a security incident. Pretty much the, the main motivator for us building Heartbleed, or building S2N was Heartbleed. Um, we decided that uh, we, we wanted to have full ownership of the stack and be able to, to stand over it at that point. Um, if, you, if you don't remember Heartbleed, um, good for you. Um, but uh, Heartbleed was you know, uh, a, a very interesting issue, uh, but also a, a relatively simple one uh, where uh, it was actually so prominent that it has its own XKCD comic, which I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's pretty funny. Um, but uh, it was really simple. An attacker could send a special message, and uh, that would cause 
the server to send back a response that included arbitrary memory. And that memory could contain you know, secrets, right? Not good, not what you want. And that happens pretty much right at the perimeter too, right? Like terminating SSL and TLS, that's like everybody's front end. And it's like really hard to, to defend against that. If you look at what was going on under the hood, right? This is the actual code in OpenSSL where the Heartbleed vulnerability was. And um, it's, it was doing, it, this is C code. Uh, if you don't read C, don't worry. I'm about to explain it. But essentially, it was using raw pointers to read memory, uh, converting the raw pointer into an integer, and then, just, and then reading from a buffer. And the mistake was that it wasn't checking that that integer uh, wasn't greater than the size of the buffer, or that the size of the buffer should be. Right? Really, really simple. But the thing about this is, it looks simple. I've extracted the lines here. Um, so if you read C, you can follow along. Uh, this was embedded in uh, a single file um, which was about 7,000 lines long, in a function which was 4,000 lines long, in a switch statement that was 3,000 lines long, and had uh, several, I think, over 100 cases in that switch statement, and, um, and mixed, it was a mixture of you know, maintaining a state machine for the protocol and parsing messages. Um, and all of this is just a fancy way of saying that, that the complexity of that file was just enormous. There is no one on Earth, including the people who wrote it, who understood that file. Like, it just does not fit in anybody's head. Um, it's, just, it's just really, really hard. Um, so when we started S2N, we were like, directly motivated by this stuff. We were like, OK. We've got to find ways to reduce complexity. Like we, we, we can't have code bases that just because they're doing hard things, like implementing cryptography, mean that they're hard to read, right? Um, and so when we started it, you know, whenever we start a project at Amazon or every team, we try to have tenets. Um, uh, tenets is an, an unusual word. So when we went to open source, we just said de um, development principles. Um, but we started with a set of tenets that would really encourage us and guide us towards keeping things really small and simple. You know, we said explicitly on day one, we're going to stay simple. Lots of features we're not going to support, which is a, a huge reduction in complexity and something I look for in security products. And if I see a security product that's got a lot of whiz-bang features, like a lot of them, often that tells me, you know, marketing are in charge, and they're just trying to hit every checkbox, and uh, I, I start to feel risky about it. Whereas when I, when I see security products that do a few things really well, you know, I have more confidence in them. Um, we had like, just explicit guidance that we'd be, we would only write clear code. Uh, and, and we had some uh, guidance around how we would structure things to, to really, really drastically reduce complexity. Like, for example, we had explicit guidance that we would never nest functions too deeply, like only about three or four deep, so you can keep it in your head, and that we would have branches that exit early, and all sorts of tricks to reduce complexity. And if you want to learn that stuff, you can go to our open source repository, and there's really detailed guides there. But um, to kind of underscore how all this works, right, our direct mitigation for like Heartbleed-style vulnerabilities right, was we, we created this I.O. framework that we call Stuffer, which is a buffer for stuff, um, where you allocate a, a buffer of memory, and then you just keep a cursor into that buffer. And so if you need to read or write an int, uh, you know, you just ask the stuffer to do it. 
and the stuffer in one place tracks and makes sure that you're never overriding memory. You know, the, the, um, the underlying operation to read bytes, which everything kind of, kind of boils down to, whether you're reading an int or something else, you know, just enforces a very simple safety check. Uh, you'll notice these, these functions are tiny. You know, they just, they fit on, and that's deliberate. Uh, they fit on one screen. Um, and it's, it's very, very easy to enforce safety, right? So here's the, here's the code in S2N that's reading uh, an integer, like would have happened in Heartbleed. And it just calls the underlying function that we just saw, and we know that's safe, and everything's good. This is all really easy to follow. You'll notice there's almost no branching. Things aren't going in different ways. Uh, we're really drastically reducing the amount of complexity in the system. Uh, the style of programming we use, it kind of lends itself to a declarative style, uh, where we thought in advance we'd architect our, our software architecture like this so that you, know, you just get these neat sequences of statements, and you don't have to, you, you know, we'd write our state machine somewhere else in a different, simple way, and just keep things very, very manageable, right? And so uh, that was our first primary approach. We're like, well, okay, we're just going to try to architect systems that have fewer branches and modes of operation and configuration knobs in them, right? And that's central to modern cryptography. Pretty much any modern cryptographic algorithm, like if you look at the noise framework, which is what Signal uses under the, under the hood, it's nowhere near as configurable as TLS. It doesn't have anywhere near the number of options. And uh, you know, cryptography engineers will tell you that's the way to go. That's the better way to go. But you know, we want to do much, much more than that, right? Um, you know, we could still make coding mistakes when we're writing S2N, right? Just like somebody could misconfigure a firewall or you know, change, hit the wrong setting in a, in a web server somewhere right, and create security risk. Um, we don't want that. But we also don't want to add code to S2N or the firewall or whatever to like, check that. Because the second you do that, you've increased the complexity of the system. And it turns out like, you know, a lot of the time you can do this stuff out of band. It doesn't have to be in the code itself. It doesn't have to be open to uh, untrusted input. You know, the most obvious way, the most obvious thing for that is tests, or just ordinary tests. Uh, you know, on, on code, that's you know, us writing unit tests. In infrastructure engineering, that's more like penetration testing and, uh, and making sure you've got all that kind of coverage. But just, just by, I guess, I don't know, coincidence or sheer luck, the time we were starting the S2N project was also the time at Amazon when we started our automated reasoning group, which is a group dedicated to using you know, really clever math to uh, analyze software, analyze infrastructure, and make sure that it's secure. And so um, from really, really early on, we decided we'd focus on formal verification uh, and, and formally verify lots and lots of parts of S2N. But we had a dual mission, right? Our mission wasn't just to verify S2N, it was also to make verification easier. So every time we worked either internally with, with the ARG team or externally with vendors who would also help us on, on this stuff, uh, doing formal verification, we would explicitly say, like, you know, okay, yeah, we want to prove our stuff secure, but really what we want to do along the way is democratize this entire technique and make it more accessible to like mortals, right? Uh, because we think these techniques are really, really important. I actually you know, think there can be kind of fatalism to information security, where you just think you know, the amount of information we're all storing and collecting is just growing and growing, and the amount of software protecting it is just growing and growing, and there's more and more 
bugs and mistakes that could happen, and there's, you know, it's a target-rich environment for attackers, and, you know, someone's determined enough, they'll always find something, and, you know, I just don't believe that. I actually think we can scale, and we can outscale attackers, and we can, uh, you know, really totally verify that systems don't have gaps in them, which is kind of cool. Uh, the way I think about all this, though, uh, you know, Byron Cook, who leads the ARG group, the Automated Reasoning Group, he likes to use the example of Pythagoras' theorem, right? And says, well, uh, you know, when you test your software, you're just testing it for those inputs. But when you prove your software, you know, you're, you're proving it correct for all possible inputs, right? That's what makes it so powerful. It can do these things like symbolic execution, and it can go through your program in lots of virtual state spaces and really uh, check that every possible condition is, is being met and, and every, everything's being done as it should. Uh, and that's all true, and that's what makes it so powerful. But this model also kind of oversells it a little. And, you know, people uh, often hear of, hey, something was proved correct, like the TLS protocol, right, SSL, and then later somebody else finds a problem, right? And then they kind of write off this whole approach of formal verification. They're like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They said this was secure. They, they told me they had a proof. Uh, what's usually happening is, is really subtle, is um, like Pythagoras' theorem is wrong, right? Um, it's, you know, it's true for triangles on a plane, sort of. I'll come back to that. But it, it's not true for triangles on the surface of a sphere, right? So if somebody like proves it correct, but they say, well, this is my model, as long as everything is a plane, uh, it's, it's going to be, you know, provably secure. Uh, but then it turns out in the real world, somebody goes and applies the triangle on the sphere, you know, it won't be correct anymore, right? And it's those little gaps in the models that people tend to uncover. And they're just like bugs in software. They're great finds, but they don't really diminish the, the amazing, you know, volumetric power uh, of what formal verification can do. Um, you know, the thing to keep in mind in, in this is that, like, all models are wrong. Right? It's, but they're just really, really useful. Um, some are really, really useful. Right? Uh, and when I say Pythagoras' theorem is wrong, like, I, I do mean it's wrong because you know, real right-angle triangles in a plane don't exist in nature. Right? There's no such thing as a point or a line if you go deep enough into like, the physics levels. Um, but it's still like, amazingly powerful. And so um, we integrated this directly into um, S2N and also worked with other industry partners. Uh, we've been part of uh, a cross-industry workshop, uh, HACS, which is uh, High Assurance Cryptography, um, that runs every year, where we've been um, you know, working with researchers and other industry partners and developing more and more tools that can like, analyze all of the code, analyze the security critical layers, and determine uh, whether, they're, you know, whether they're safe or not. And some of what you know, some of what we can do is is crazy. You know, we started with some pretty simple stuff. We verified the correctness of our HMAC algorithm. Just made sure it does the right thing for all possible uh, inputs. We made that easier along the way. This is all in our open source repository if you want. But then we took on a harder problem. We're like, let's verify the correctness of our state machines. Let's make sure, which is no one had ever even tried before. Um, and we verified the correctness of of uh, various state machines that we have a cork on cork state machine, which is just around when we send and release data, and one on, uh, on, on the TLS handshake itself. 
this was good. At the time, uh, the OpenSSL handshake had had two vulnerabilities in it, one that let you change um, to encrypted mode a little earlier than you should have been able to. And so it was really nice to be able to formally verify um, we, we didn't have uh, any of those issues. We form formally verified a random number generator. It's a really hard problem. Uh, we formally verified our, our post-quantum uh, crypto code and stuff like that. But that's all kind of like, okay, we've got some cryptographic algorithm, make sure, make sure it's kind of correct. We then started getting into like really nuanced stuff, like let's make sure our code is side channel free, right? which is a really hard, um, hard security problem. So we, um, we, we built this tool internally called SideTrail, which effectively instruments the code and synthetically executes it for all possible inputs and then measures any potential difference in execution, any different branches it might take, any different memory accesses it might make. And then you can use that to build regression tests and guarantee that you're not introducing any side channels. Or if you do have a side channel, it can measure it for you and you can enforce that it never increases, right? Um, these are all really hard security guarantees, but we're doing them all out of band, right? None of this goes into the S2N code. This happens at commit time when we build things. It's part of our CI pipelines. It, none of this security ends up in the running code. So the complexity of our running system is still really, really, really small, right? Whereas other techniques, you just have to add a lot of code to be able to have these guarantees. A lot of asserts, uh, a lot of guard branches, a lot of stuff like that. We're working on more formal verification. At the moment, uh, we're working on some generated libraries that generate um, arithmetic code, and we're proving that those are correct. And we're formally verifying our implementation of TLS 1.3 uh, before we release it. And so that's where we've been in the cryptography field, right? But these techniques, we can use them for, inf for infrastructure too, right? And we've got uh, examples now um, where, the, where we're taking literally the, the same approaches, right? That we've been doing symbolic execution and SMT and uh, all, all these ways of uh, exploring gigantic, complex state spaces and, and guaranteeing that there's no, like, you know, uh, weird edge conditions. So we've got, that was interesting. Um, so we've got Amazon Macy, uh, which um, you know, can explore your, your policies and, and check that nothing uh, is, could get in that shouldn't be able to get in. Um, and then this week, we announced uh, a service I'm really excited about, which is uh, Identity, or I am Access Analyzer where it is applying these same techniques, right? And if, if you think about what IAM Access Analyzer does, right? It looks at your IAM policies, and it's saying, wait, okay, well, it's, it then synthetically produces all potential inputs, and then figures out, well, here's how many accounts could possibly have access to that thing, and here's what they are, right? That's not an easy problem. You know, IAM policies are effectively a programming language that it's got its own, you know, uh, programming language. I don't know if it's Turing complete or not, but you can certainly do branches. So it's a pretty complex thing to analyze, but it searches that space for all potential inputs. You know, the the other approach to this, right? Previously would have been to add a new layer, right? Would have been to add some new layer that's either in front of or behind I am, that's like just double checking, like enforcing some invariant, like whether uh, a certain group has access to something they shouldn't. Whereas this thing can do all this analysis out of band. Right? without adding any actual 
uh, code risk or taking any untrusted input. Uh, and we're, we're applying these techniques in more and more places. You know, more and more customers, uh, I've been working with a few, are using um, uh, log sources like CloudTrail and FlowLogs um, to, to enforce security boundaries, right? Because they don't want more running code in the way for both security risk and performance reasons. So it's like, well, we're going to really tightly monitor everything and enforce invariance out of band there. And we're going to ensure like, that nothing is accessing anything it shouldn't, right? It's a fairly standard uh, security technique uh, for something like CloudTrail. But for something like FlowLogs, right? Like, the amount of clever little invariants that I've seen, you know, I had, uh, I, I spent some time last week investing in a customer issue who um, they had just built this nice little script that analyzed their flow logs. And one of their invariants was, you know, these boxes shouldn't be making any outbound connections at all, right? Simple invariant, it was just a, a, a sensitive part of their system. Nobody, it shouldn't be doing anything. And they noticed pretty quickly, yeah, actually, it is making outbound uh, connections. What are those? And we dug in, and you know, the first few were explained. It was actually the servers just getting to their local Yum server, um, so that makes sense. And then there was another round where it was NTP traffic. I was like, OK, that makes sense, and checking all these off. But it was, it, it was amazing, just like this, it was like 10 lines of Python. Like it was just these simple invariants produced this like just rich data set. And when I think of what it would take if we were doing that in the data plane, like it would be way more lines of code and it'd be risky because you'd be exposing it to attackers uh, and all the untrusted input. Uh, you know, we're trying to bake a lot of this stuff in, including, you know, using machine learning and, and the uh, automated reasoning group stuff into, into tools like guard duty and uh, Detective, which uh, I don't, don't have a slide for because I didn't even know about until it was announced on stage. Uh, that's how things work around here. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, but it, um, it really helps us. Like this approach, if you can kind of adapt uh, your thinking to it or your orientation for security risk to thinking you know, not about these layers, but about okay, I want to minimize the surface area. I want to minimize even those layers. I want to reduce that uh, complexity risk. Um, it's a huge enabler. As I said, in places where you can't do this, right? if you do need to add layers to systems that are, um, to systems that are running, uh, what we have found key and the approach that we take is uh, we try to make those layers managed right? internally. We, don't, we try not to add layers by saying, OK, we're going to import a library, or we're going to have this tool that does this stuff, and it's going to be in. We try to have a team responsible for that. Or, or if you're an AWS customer, you might use an AWS partner as a managed service to do that, uh, or ourselves if we have a service for that. Um, because when it's running in that mode, it's not quite the same kind of risk. Because uh, you know, running managed services in general um, the, you know, they're keeping up to date with CVEs, they're keeping up to date with, you know, they're finding these things, they have to stand over a running system. It's not the same kind of lurking risk uh, that you get if you've just, you know, added several hundred or several thousand lines um, to your code base. It's, uh, uh, so that, that's our kind of preferred next best option. But if you take nothing away from like everything I've talked about today, um, 
I think the biggest thing to take away is to just, if you can, measure the size of systems. Right? That's an important aspect of security risk. We've learned that the bigger they are, the more risk there is lurking. And if there's ways you can make that transparent in your organization and uh, build a closed loop so that folks can uh, reduce that size over time, it, is, uh, it, it can pay dividends. You know, we've been focusing on the size of our code base and our cryptography software. That's just been getting smaller and smaller. You know? The team comes up with these great commits that are like, I found a way to remove 50 lines by like, adding this you know, one function. And it's like, awesome. Let's do it. Uh, we love those changes. Uh, think about how you can move security out of band, how you can analyze data, not necessarily in line, um, because that's generally you know, just better. Um, hopefully, I didn't scare you all with the complexity theory. Um, thanks again for coming. If you have questions for me, try to grab me out in the hall. It's probably going to be the best way after, because we've got to get some more people in here and fill the room again. Um, thank, you for, thank you very much for coming.